0: episode for you guys um i will be recording uh, this alone so the topic is the privatization of money and the subtitle is why governments will let bitcoin become the world's currency Uh, This is a controversial topic, but why did I want to write this? Uh, There's many pieces out there written about the relationship between governments and Bitcoin and I thought of coming to it uh, from a fresh perspective. So the purpose of this video is to basically explore a thesis and a thesis under which governments uh, choose to not stop Bitcoin and uh, I'm not saying this will happen But what I wanted to do is just start from a desired end result, Bitcoin becomes the world money, and just examine a scenario under which it could happen, right? This is only a scenario. I don't know if it will happen this way, but I think I have a pretty good case of why it could happen. And the main thesis uh, is, you know, Bitcoin supporters in general, what they say is uh, governments cannot stop it. So I don't agree with this statement. I don't agree that governments cannot stop Bitcoin. If the governments could put people on the moon, uh, stop the Nazi regime that at some point ruled a huge chunk of the world, uh, destroyed the USSR, which was a government that had lots of nukes, sent the first man into space and back, um, and governments still stopped them, they can stop Bitcoin. We can talk about uh, you know what it would take for them to do this, and it's not gonna be trivial, but they could do it, Uh, and and we can talk about this later. Another thesis is that governments are not efficient, uh, they're lazy, they lack political will, they don't have the resources to commit, uh, and that's why they won't stop it. So this is a little bit of a more believable argument, but it assumes that Bitcoin isn't significant enough. Now, if Bitcoin isn't significant enough for them to want to stop it, uh, it's not very interesting. Uh, So if Bitcoin fulfills its promise and becomes the world money uh, and it becomes a threat to government revenues, a cost-benefit analysis of the governments would justify committing the resources required to stop it. I want to be very clear here. Uh, this argument uh, actually makes me sleep at night because until Bitcoin becomes significant enough for governments to want to stop it, we still have a lot of upside. And, and I've discussed this with some of our guests. Uh, you know, I think Bitcoin can just take all of the market share of gold, which would put it at around $500,000 per Bitcoin and governments will not care at this stage. Uh, they're lazy and efficient, all of these things, right? Uh, I think it will still hold when Bitcoin uh, reaches 500,000. So you could stop the video now and and go to sleep, you know, without worrying too much. You still have more than a 10X uh, upside before governments start caring. However, I like philosophical ideas and I like to just like think of different scenarios. And so that's why I thought this, this video is still um, good for us to make. Now. Basically, uh, I want to explore a scenario under which governments choose to not stop Bitcoin, right? So so they basically look at it and they say we could stop it, but we choose to not stop it. Uh, The only way under which this could happen, uh, again, given the fact that Bitcoin is significant enough and a threat to uh, the current regime, is if it increases the government's tax revenue. Now, this is very controversial to say that An adoption of Bitcoin as global money will increase uh, the government's tax revenue. So that's why I want to make the video to explore this scenario. Now, basically, when we look at governments, the important thing to understand is governments want one thing, which is more power and resources. So the government is the entity that has monopoly over the use of force. That's the definition of a government. Different governments, right, they choose to use this this feature differently. Some are very peaceful, like Switzerland, and some are very bloody, like Cambodia during Pol Pot. Uh, The reason to be bloody as a government, if the government believes that people don't know what is good for them, and if left to their own devices, people will reach a suboptimal outcome. That's why you really, really want to intervene. And if you think that people will fight you really hard, uh, oppose your intervention, then you know it makes sense to be bloody. And so that's kind of like the left uh, ideology just in general, which is like, don't leave people to their own devices. Uh, we will centrally plan something and, and we'll reach a better outcome. And this was actually the thought behind the USSR. So um, this this historian uh, called Yuval Noah Chagari, I had uh, uh, the privilege of, of studying with him in the Hebrew University back before he was like a celebrity. And he basically said, look, communism, it was a very utopian, it, it was a techno-utopian idea. Uh, people looked at, at industrialization, steel, Electricity, all of these like things that were happening in the 19th century. And they said, wait a second, if we could just like centrally plan everything, we could deliver a really, really high quality of life uh, for our citizens. Uh, we all know that things didn't work that way eventually, but the thought process wasn't necessarily a bad one. This episode is brought to you by Caviar Gems, the world's most exquisite dehydrated caviar used for cocktails, seasonings, and your favorite recipes. And also our partnership with Defiance Media, a 24-7 syndicated linear TV network that brings you all the latest in AI, robotics, blockchain, crypto, and anything innovation. Tune in. now. What's the reason to be peaceful? We said some governments are, I call it bloody. Uh, you know, Others are peaceful. Uh, by the way, bloody is just like the authoritarianism taken to an extreme. You can be authoritarian without being bloody. We have examples like currently, for example, the government of Hungary is a li- its more on the authoritarian side uh, in the European Union, but it's not driving to necessarily very bad outcomes. Uh, so when I say bloody, I just mean like very, very forceful, and, and you know, telling people what to do, uh, or else we will, uh, you know, either shoot you or fine you, and it's just a spectrum. So the reason to be peaceful is when the government basically believes that people make better choices when left to their own devices. Uh, so in this state of affairs, the government sees itself as a provider of law and order, which is basically securing life, liberty, property. Uh, adjudicating between disagreeing parties and that's it right now the key thing to understand is that even if a government starts as peaceful you have powerful lobby groups that can sometimes petition it to apply force to achieve certain goals and we'll deal with that later but the the point is to think of a government as, as a very dynamic thing it's not just like one guy deciding to do one thing, it's more, you have different stakeholders and each stakeholder is pushing towards like their outcome. Now, regardless of whether the government is like peaceful or bloody, they want more power or, or, and resources. So peaceful governments want the power to make sure that bloody governments don't invade them and want to use the resources for the benefit of their population, right? So you can think of Switzerland the reason why they could be neutral and, and all of that and small government and, and power to the local states, it's because they were hilly and very, very hard to conquer. They were mountainous and, and people there were very, uh, you know, well armed and so forth. So they still invested in, in their protection, which allowed them to be peaceful. Now, bloody governments, they want to, you know, they want the power to invade other countries, crush dissenting views and and so forth. If any change causes the government to have less power or resources, it is likely to be opposed by both peaceful and bloody governments. So, in fact, the total gover- global government spending has been steadily increasing uh, over time. So if you look at like the, mob, the, the percentage of uh, human wealth spent by the governments overall, it has just constantly been increasing. Uh, now even if a government uh, chooses to diminish its power, other factions within it who want more power will be able to outcompete the faction that wants to diminish the power. So this was very well explored in the book The Road to Serfdom, where they basically say groups who believe in grabbing power are more organized by definition, and they can have basically an, uh, uh, an influence that's uh, an influence of the political process that's like outsized. It's, it's more than just their res- uh, share of, of power because they're more organized. And they're also comparing with groups who are more individualistic. So, uh, you know, in the budding USSR, right after the revolution, the anarchists who were among the people who supported the taking down of the king were among the first ones to be sent to gulags by the Bolsheviks, that were just better organized so there there was this revolution and this happens many times it happened in iran where several groups wanted to take down the shah and within the people who wanted to take him down were communists and many other people but but the islamists were very well organized and so they almost did a revolution within the revolution and then they imprisoned the communists were the first ones that they imprisoned not the loyalists of of the Shah, so basically a group who wants more power versus a group who wants less power, you can guess who will win within that government. Now, there are many ways to view the role of government. There's an optimistic view, there's a utopian view, there's a libertarian view. So the optimistic view basically says, governments take some resources by force from people and use them to intervene where markets fail. The belief is that if the government got less resources, the average or the median or the bottom decile, however you want to measure the KPI of success, that KPI would be worse. So that's the optimistic view of the government. That's kind of the Paul Krugman standard Keynesian view of the government, which is like, oh, you know, you have a market failure. You have some kind of a liquidity trap. They they have different names for these situations. But the idea is like, if you take less resources from the people, the outcome will be worse. But I have to say sometimes this, this works. So in Northern Europe, uh, in, in the Scandinavian countries, uh, you know, they have a very high tax rate, and, you know, the outcome is pretty good, objectively. The problem with that is that it's really hard to prove a counterfactual. So what would have happened if the same societies, right, they're educated... They are hardworking. They have lots of natural resources. Whatever you think of the societies of North, Northern Europe, what would have happened with less government intervention? And we'll never know that because it's very hard to run an a B test in a society that's homogeneous, uh, you know, many times very different types of government uh, you know, happen with many different types of of societies. So it's really hard to say, Take one society, split it in two, do two forms of government and look at what happens. They had it with North and South Korea. The problem there is that North Korea is very, very radical and South Korea is not super radical. It's just like a run of the mill capitalist country. And so, yeah, of course, you can see that South Korea is doing better than the North. But the question then would have been what would happen if North Korea was just like South Korea, but with a higher tax rate? really hard to prove that or to to think intelligently about that. Now, it's also very hard to prove what would the intervention do on the long run. So you could say, uh, for example, if the Federal Reserve, they stepped in, they bought a bunch of mortgage-backed securities in 2009 to prevent the housing prices from collapsing further. This helped homeowners who had underwater mortgages, it did not help people who were renting. It made it harder for them to buy a home. Now, the net benefit analysis of this uh, intervention is really hard. If you wouldn't have intervened, a bunch of financial institutions would go bankrupt, more people would lose their jobs, uh, you know, many bad things that the policy makers were trying to prevent would happen. On the other hand, the price of real estate would be much cheaper. People would find other jobs, and then be it would be easier for them to buy a house. So which of these two forces is stronger? Not a trivial question to answer. So that's the optimistic view. Then there's the utopian view, uh, which I mentioned before, which is the governments, they take all the resources from the people, and they redistribute them in a centrally planned way, And the utopian belief is that if we only gave governments some more control, they could solve a lot more of humanity's problems. So that's sometimes called let's legislate poverty away. Um, So two thoughts here. A, this has never worked. So the, the worst genocides were created by governments who took absolute control in order to make the world a better place. Uh, I mentioned Pol Pot in Cambodia, uh, Hitler, you know, even though he was anti-Semitic, which you could say it's a bad thing. I'm, I'm a Jew. I have many people in my, um, family that, uh, survived the Holocaust. But the point is he believed that he's making the world a better place, right? Like he believed that for the German people, it will be much better if, you know, he eliminated all, all the other people. So my point is. Even if you believe that the governments have good intentions, the outcomes are pretty bad. Um, now, why is that never a good idea? It, this has been described many, many in many, many places. Uh, the main issue is that central planning cannot reach better decisions than distributed planning because it's very hard for the government to know everybody's preferences, right? So, you know, No matter, you take the smartest PhDs and you put them on a board to decide what types of cars to make. No matter how smart they are, it's very hard to get the opinion of people about what cars they want. And and this matching between people's opinion and the production is what the free market and what distributed uh, calculation makes. And so that's why central planning has never worked until now. However, I'm open to the idea that this may one day work. Uh, For example, if you have an artificial intelligence system that can make better decisions than humans and if you have like really cheap energy. Uh, So imagine all of the goods and services are a function of energy. And so cheap energy, imagine nuclear power plants everywhere with perfect disposal of the nuclear waste. You can basically create anything for a marginal cost of zero And then AI can distribute the the goods among people based on the long-term benefit that the goods provide. And if all of this works, we can create a super high standard of living compared to today. Uh, and, And you can see sometimes autocratic states like the United Arab Emirates, they can deliver a really high quality of life to their citizens just because they're very wealthy. So if you could create abundant energy, it's almost like becoming more wealthy. Now, that's the utopian view of the government. It has never worked until today. Maybe it will work someday in the future. Now, the libertarian view of the government is basically the government is like a mafia, right? It's like a gang and it extorts protection money by force. They treat their subjects like a farmer would treat cattle and extract resources from them, Uh, just like, a farmer doesn't want to kill its cattle, it wants to give them the minimum they need in order to be productive, so does the government treat its citizens. They know that if you tax above a certain rate, uh, the productivity will fall, so that's why the taxes are not at 100%, but they capture as much of the economic activity as possible in order to enrich themselves. Uh, now. Democracy, you might think that uh, it's a very uh, freedom promoting system, but it's actually the most productive way to extort resources from the population because people are easily manipulated into voting for certain policies when the alternatives are either not presented or large enough quantities of people are bribed into voting for these policies. In the USA, there are only two choices for presidential candidates, and none of them, for example, run on a ticket of cutting down the military by 50% or completely deregulating healthcare. For example, if you can have the ability to import drugs like pills, pharmaceutical drugs from India, which are prescribed by an Indian doctor over telemedicine, right? Uh, both of these policies, I could make the case that they would increase the quality of life of the US citizens. They have never been discussed in the media, nobody talks about them, and so forth. So, my point is uh, it doesn't matter if you're a democracy or not, the libertarian view says the government is a gang that is basically doing everything in order to extort the maximum revenue from its citizens, and uh, because of that, um, you know, libertarians want a smaller government. Now in this uh, video, I want to take a unique approach and not not focus on which view is right or wrong. Many books have been written about this subject and many of them are just preaching to the choir. Um, I haven't been able to convince people who believe in one you know method that another method is better. But I just want us to agree that regardless of the view that we take, the government wants more money and power over time. And and hopefully this can make the video appeal to a wide range of people, no matter what you think the the, the role of the government is. If I can prove to you, or if I can make the case that since all governments want more money and power, the way for them to choose to not stop Bitcoin is that under a Bitcoin standard, they can make more tax revenue than without the bitcoin standard and i like this framework because it doesn't assume that the government is good or bad objectively it doesn't even assume that the government is efficient or not if bitcoin results in more taxes collected governments will support it regardless of whether you take the optimistic view the utopian view the libertarian view doesn't matter the governments will support it so now all we need to do is explore a scenario under which bitcoin can uh, increase the tax revenue. So how will that happen? The government's revenue is a function of their productivity. So you have places with lots of natural resources, but if the productivity per capita is not high, they don't become very wealthy. For example, Venezuela, after they nationalized the oil industry, uh, you know, what good does it do uh, that they have all this oil if they cannot... Extract it from the ground, sell it globally and and refine it and all of those things. So people basically in, in places where the natural resources are very high, they will vote if it's a democracy to get benefits. And so the only way an economy can become wealthy is if the average person is more productive than the benefits that the government gives them. Otherwise, it's just a short-lived thing. Like in Venezuela, Hugo Chavez came, he gave a really high quality of life, but it was not sustainable because everything was contingent on the price of oil. And when the price of oil collapsed, all the benefits stopped and and then people are in a really hard uh, place. So the key to a wealthy society is a productive society. In part two of this video, which we will release tomorrow, we will explore how does adopting Bitcoin as a currency make the average citizen of a country more productive. So stay tuned and uh, I'm really looking forward uh, to sharing part two with you. In the meantime, have a great day. Uh, Please like our podcast, subscribe to it, and uh, share any comments you might have on Twitter or on uh, YouTube or on all the other podcast platforms. I will see you tomorrow.